this week on the Back Table Podcast. I'm hoping that it's something where we're headed in that direction. But I see it, I think, even just in residency training now and the resources that are available, a lot of these things are accessible and they're so normal. And access to mental health support services and other types of support services are normal things. Taking a day off after something like this is a normal thing, actually. I hope that's the case everywhere, but but it's something where I'm seeing right now. It's an integrated part into graduate medical education. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and I've got our co-host, Amy Park. Hi. Amy, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Busy, but you know, that's how it always is. Looking forward to seeing everybody in Tucson. Yay. Coming up for SGS. So excited to welcome our guest today, uh, Dr. Susan Khalil, Assistant Professor of OBGYN at Mount Sinai, a fellowship trained minimally basic GYN surgeon. And she's here to talk to us about second victim, um, something that is an important conversation in uh, in healthcare, but especially in OBGYN. So uh, Dr. Khalil, welcome. Can we call you Susan? Is that all right? Yes, please do. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for bringing up this topic, which I think is a very important topic with um, the topic of physician wellness. And I know you've covered that previously, but the second victim is definitely something that I think we see not just in GYN, but OB and GYN especially. Yeah, it's a term that I don't think I'd heard until uh, further along in my career, but something that definitely resonated with me. I want to get started. Introduce yourself to the audience and our listeners by telling us a little bit about who you are, your practice, and how you got to where you are, and also how you got interested in uh, second victim. So my practice is primarily focused on endometriosis and um, minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, but I also play a pretty active role in quality and safety. And uh, that's something that I've engaged in, I think, over the last like uh, seven or eight years. Um, And it's something that I've worked on with quality improvement initiatives for obstetrics and for gynecologic surgery. And and I was first really exposed to the concept of the second victim in my role in another institution where it was more of a smaller community hospital, but with a lot of different um, interesting cases and uh, a lot of high-risk events or serious events. And um, I was exposed to this concept of Schwartz Rounds, which is from the Schwartz Center, uh, which is more of a national organization and movement that even has membership. And it includes holding these quarterly meetings that are multidisciplinary. And what what that means is nursing, environmental services, uh, social work, anyone who's involved in a case or in the care of a patient in any way that they touch them would meet and, you know, select a certain case or a topic that someone would endorse for a moderator to hold a meeting and everyone would share their involvement and just their feelings about the case. And it wasn't more of a regulatory kind of thing, like a post-event huddle, but it was more of a chance to really speak about what their emotions were. And that that was really my first exposure. And 
it's interesting to see it through the eyes of different clinicians because I think they grieve in different ways than I think obstetricians and gynecologists do. So that that was where it first really shed my eyes on it. And then, I, you know, I, I remember running into you at the uh, surgical coaching training. And, you know, a, a lot of the things that I think certain institutions are very key on or have a, a large infrastructure for, other organizations don't seem to have that. And you sometimes take it for granted, but at the institution where I am now, there's a chief wellness officer. There's also, we have a vice chair for wellness in my own department, and he's actually an anesthesiologist who is just really a fascinating person who's actually authored a book on choose happiness. So he's he's the perfect fit for it. He was an OB anesthesiologist, and you know he's even partnered with me on different quality initiatives like doing uh, mindfulness meditation prior to timeout. Do you do that prior to your cases? Prior to timeout, we did this as a pilot to help endorse like team engagement. So there's this team steps survey that measures teams and how well they respect one another and how cohesive they are. And that's where this really stemmed from, just about differences in gender and gender dyads in the operating room. So we used to have this thing where we used to do timeout, and he would uh, call in and have this meditation that's really specific to starting the case. Oh, he's not even he's not even in the case. Yeah. He's just he's just calling in and just calling into the timeouts. Right, right. And then you know he, he's a really an interesting person. Um, his name is Dr. Jeffrey Zahn, and I'm giving him a shout out because he really does deserve well, we, it. If you wrote a book, we can put it. We can put a link in our show notes too. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. His book is Choose Happiness, and he's an interesting person. But it's great because of his efforts and initiatives with making sure that not just wellness, but practical wellness, like what it means for serious events on labor and delivery, for serious events from the gynecologic surgical teams that support these services sometimes and their involvement. So so we had, you know, we have this program that's called In Your Shoes, where it's almost like shift work, which is interesting. There's an anonymous QR code where you can uh, submit through Google Forms uh, your concern or your incident or something that was bothering you. And the rules for this program are you have to be present during this huddle that he has where they discuss these things. And representative from, you don't have to personally be present, but somebody from like, if it's a nursing team, member they have to be someone has to be present there if it's a resident who puts this in somebody from the residency team has to be uh, representative at this meeting and they just foster more of a dialogue about different events and different things like that and and also in addition to that really linking you directly with sometimes uh, psychiatry or a psychiatrist or other uh, mindfulness services or other social services if you need help with a really traumatic event that you've been through. So this is a program through not just the department, but through the institution. This is a program that, does it meet regularly? Is it something that these these meetings are happening like monthly, weekly, daily? How often are these things happening? And how, and you, so you're scanning a QR code, but how do you sort of make it from the scan to these meetings? So, so there's a, an AM huddle an AM meeting near labor and delivery, and there is a PM meeting. So there's two shifts where uh, there's an opportunity to sit down and have um, a conversation about different topics that are endorsed through this Google form. So this is your department. This is the yeah. vice chair for wellness, and this is happening twice a day? Twice a day. in typical L&D type of, you know, like our obsessiveness on uh, the work ethics, even when it comes to this stuff. But I think it provides a framework where there's somebody who's regularly there, and it's anonymous. You don't have to write in who this was from. 
Um, but he provides a direct line for if you wanted to speak to somebody from mental health services, if you needed um, additional support. And, and also, basically, it's, a, it's something that's voluntary. So everybody who shows up wants to be there. It's not someone who has to be there. And there's no, you know, everything that happens there is confidential. So it's a good place for if you had something that was particularly distressing to even really tiny little communication errors. And this is just like in his office? Where is this taking place? In a lounge that we have. We have this actually really good place where they discuss this. And so this is the vice chair of wellness for your department that goes there. How many days a week is there an act- actually an issue that needs to be discussed? Is it every day? Is it, you know, is, is he there regardless? It's not every day. He's there regardless, but it's a few times a week or so. So it's, and he'll usually like compile what the um, comments were and just different practical solutions to small things and things that just need something larger. He, he helps facilitate a network for you to speak to a psychiatrist if you need a mental health professional or other types of services to really try to help with dealing with different traumatic events as well. And then on an institutional level, there's we have a chief wellness officer where there's a program that's called iCare. And that involves, you know, different mindfulness programs as well as different uh, mental health support services that are anonymous to help different faculty, students, trainees with any kinds of events that they may find to be very serious. I think in OBGYN, we really see a lot sometimes of those severe events or severe maternal events, and they take their toll in so many different ways. And I think as a profession, that's something that's not unique to one institution or one region even. I think it's an international thing. It's the way we express sometimes traumatic events that we see on a regular basis. But I think having a resource with a built-in infrastructure, like there's even policies that we have on these things, and policy sounds kind of crazy. When you apply it to these things where you want a little bit more of social support for these things. But I think a policy acknowledges that it's not just you're not alone in this, that the institution does support you. How long have you had these programs? So the wellness program has been around for a few years through the institution, at least five years. Was there an event that happened that after which all this started? Was there a traumatic event or something that happened that made someone realize it? Was it just kind of like a series of things over time? I think the institutional program, I'm not sure what the impetus was for that, but through our department, like when Dr. Zahn was appointed and he was the chief wellness officer, it was really directly through our leadership. Our prior chair and our current chair supports this work. It kind of came out of nowhere, but it was really a welcomed presence where he's really integrated himself into and his programs into a lot of the residency programs fellowship programs, as well as just being a resource for faculty as well, as well as other types of services. So I don't think there was one trigger, but it's one of those things where there's always this large institution, holistic kind of approach to just maintaining the wellness of the workforce and just, you know, having a really good community. I think the institution fosters community, which is really unique from other places. Can I just ask, Because I have a couple of friends who live in New York, and I know COVID took a huge toll. And presumably, since you've had this going in the department for the last five years or so, how did you see that deploy during COVID, and how has it evolved over time? You know, I think COVID definitely accelerated the process a little bit more with just making it more accessible, not just a website, not just an email. But I think, you know, you can directly text if you needed help. 
through our department, they're able to facilitate, you know, mental health support services and fostering even just wellness days. Like if you need a day or time to just time off to recover from something, um, these things have really just become more practical and, and less barriers to getting these resources. That's pretty amazing. So it sounds like it's really very much supported by leadership and it does translate into time off if needed. What are the other examples of you said that there's little things that translate into action? Like what other things have come up that they can help with? You know, I think it's the tiny microaggressions that happen sometimes in daily clinical practice. So there's one instance where um and it's interesting because he types this out as a newsletter. It's anonymous and just labeled by the different parties that, that are represented and workable solutions. So it can be something as small as communicating on a vocera, how one team member doesn't like how the other receiving party hangs up and it makes them feel like what they communicated wasn't important or it was disrespectful. And he explains in possible solutions, you know, it could be the battery. It could be, you know, sometimes it doesn't identify who's actually initially initiating the call. So make sure you identify yourself so that the person can find you if they get disconnected. But it's a lot of little little human touches that I think add to less microaggressions. And I think the goal uh, for this project was actually changing the culture on labor and delivery, which I, I think is a really, really important one. It's a tough place to change. I mean, L&D is its own little beast. I mean, you can you can sort of tell when you have medical students rotate through and just like their look on their face after one shift. And they're just like, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, L&D is its own, its own animal. Um, it definitely has its own culture from institution to institution. I mean, it can be a tough place to work for sure. And it's interesting how these programs are like, you see them and you're always impressed, like, oh, this is this sounds like such a great program. And and the longer I get to see different places and how they respond to different serious events, I realize it's not the program, it's the people behind them that keep them alive. And it's their influence on these institutions and the people that they touch just being accessible, being present. And this is, I think it really more so speaks to the institutions. It's like a tribe of mentors that are really there. So there's a lot of different resources for support. And this one with the second victim, which is really just the first victim is the person who undergoes the traumatic event. But the second victim really is the caregiver who witnesses this and the trauma that they're left with, which sometimes requires mental health support. But it also sometimes requires just community from a community that understands clinically what's happening and can help them really process sometimes their grief or be able to work through this or even give them the space that they need so that they can return and, you know, become more healthy or resilient through this process. Yeah. I mean, culture is no accident. And I, I believe that's that's true. I think leadership supports these mentors that you talk about having space to lead, having space to implement their culture. But you mentioned that, you know, you talk about the second victim, right? So the patient has a bad outcome. That's the victim that we think about in training, in our jobs, that we're worried about. But I, I have vivid memories of my time in residency, intern year early on, you know, big bad outcome happens. Devastating, devastating. You're a learner. You're a physician and you're a learner. You don't always know where you're supposed to be in terms of your growth, in terms of your knowledge base. You always feel like you need to know more. And I, as much as we all feel like we need to know more now, clearly at the time when you feel like you don't know what you're doing and when bad outcomes happen, I, I'll never forget you know, that early traumatic event for the patient. But also what, what I remember, what I remember is my friend who was the one who was 
caring for that patient and just seeing how devastated she was and how how much of a victim she was and how much it I cared about it, but I don't know how much support she got outside of, you know, a little group of us who were like sitting around her, you know, how much of it was just like trying to make her feel better. But I don't know that there was much in terms of an institutional or, uh, and that's, I, I don't, I, I trained a great program. I don't think it was anything to do with the place as much as just, just the time. I don't think that was something that, and, you know, 15 years ago that we, that was not a term I had heard before. I don't know. Yeah. When, when did this idea of the second victim, I mean, and I don't know, if either either of you guys, when did that idea come into your world? So I'm not going to be an expert, but I'm I'm the recipient of a bunch of experts. Fortunately, where I am, I just, I guess someone who's been just exposed to it through, I think, quality and safety, which was really interesting to me how it is part of, even though it feels like such a regulatory kind of existence, it really does try to address some of these ideas. I think that the concept of second victim at least has emerged more so in residency training as far as I can remember back in like 2014 or so. And that's where it became a term or more of a movement to try to integrate into education. I'm not sure if it's as integrated in obstetrics and gynecology, graduate medical education, but more so in other specialties like internal medicine, family medicine, things like that, where they do have some of that infrastructure in place already. And and I, I'm hoping that it's something where we're headed in that direction. But I see it, I think, even just in residency training now and the resources that are available, a lot of these things are accessible and they're so normal. And access to mental health support services and other types of support services are normal things. Taking a day off after something like this is a normal thing, actually. I hope that's the case everywhere, but but it's something where I'm seeing right now. It's an integrated part into graduate medical education. I think it's fascinating hearing from, you know, one of our colleagues, Angela Chowdhury at Northwestern, talking about their peer support program. And then my friend Lucy Chi is at Beth Israel in Boston, and they also have a peer support program. And those are really focused on if there's a sentinel vent type of situation. But I think what's fascinating about what you're describing is that, you know, this whole culture change and the microaggressions and then the way we speak to each other. I mean, that's tough also because the Vasera and, and nursing staff included, I mean, there was a lot of nursing turnover and still is a lot of nursing turnover. So, you know, L&Ds all over the place are shutting down and travelers are coming in. So I think that's also, you can only win on culture to retain nurses and staff, number one. Number two, regarding the exposure through quality and safety, it's fascinating how that's really become a third wheel of like, there's research, there's education, and now there's quality and safety in addition to the clinical activities. And talking to people from other institutions, sometimes that process is quite punitive. You're reeling from a complication, and then three days later, you got to defend it in an M&M, and then you have to go through this kind of harsh M&M, depending on where you are, go in front of the peer review committee. Some people have to go through a focused, the PPE, and that goes, I mean, depending on where, where how that falls, that goes into your file, you know, your personnel file. So, I mean, it can be quite, it feels punitive for what could be an honest mistake or a complication you had no control over or whatever the circumstances may be. So I don't know. I'm just curious about your take on all of that, how it intersects with all of this. 
I think that's a really great question. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because quality and safety is supposed to be from two sides. You know, it's supposed to represent the patient safety aspect, but it's also supposed to protect the provider at the same time. Sometimes there are unfair questions that get posed and it's a, an opportunity really to review everything. But quality and safety in itself, I think, is sometimes very traumatic. And that's why I think having the right leadership with it is really key. You know, we, we have some seasoned quality and safety faculty who really can help provide a lot of times just peer support when a severe event happens where they understand the humanity of it. They don't use it against you and they're able to provide that infrastructure. So, so it depends, again, on culture. Culture is really key on a lot of these different things. There's now that concept of just culture where you're supposed to just look at the rationale behind why different things happen. And that concept of second victim was actually, you know, it's described on AHRQ's site, actually, as, you know, spinning off from the landmark publication to as human. So it's one of those things where I think quality and safety feels sometimes like it is this punitive aspect of it, but there is still that second victim perspective that I think it's not even exclusive to physicians. It's exclusive to nurses as well. And many of the people who just provide any kind of support. So I think just having a culture that facilitates support for everyone who is involved in these things and just normalizing it because it it is going to happen. And I think when you don't report certain activities, it just leads to further like workforce attrition and how COVID kind of accelerated a lot of those gaps that we had within our system. Because I think to err as human is what, like was it 99 or something Institute of Medicine? I mean, it's it's not new. Because I remember I gave a grand rounds on failure in medicine and medicine fellowship, but this idea that these systems issues, right, and teaching that mistakes should be looked at from a systems perspective. Now, obviously, as individuals, we're going to make mistakes and feel bad about them and we should care. But that's been a slow wheel turning for the last quarter century, getting institutions to, you know, not just understand, I mean, the creating of quality and safety work groups, divisions, departments, however they're constructed, but how those groups actually treat people, right? Or how they how they address situations. And so, the intention can often be good because I think M&M started off, right, it was anesthesia, I think, 100 years ago saying we can be better at this or whatever it was, uh, know, somewhere up east, I want to say like Hopkins or something, but it was like, you know, let's publish all of our surgical bad outcomes in the paper and the surgeons were like, <laughs> no, let's not do that. But the goal is always to get better. And But when you do that, you're putting someone's mistakes and fa- failures up on stage and M&M became a thing like Amy mentioned where it can feel like you're being punished or you can feel like you're being sort of crucified in a way. And even though you're trying to learn, you're trying to get better, we, we collectively are, these systems haven't always made us feel that way. And so to take that next step and have wellness officers and vice chairs of wellness actually step up and like sort of walk you through it and make that process feel more routine is something that I think does address those issues that Amy brought up and that you brought up, which is making mistakes can be devastating for us. And even though we're trying to get better and quality and safety measures, we want to focus on the mistakes so we can make them less frequent by shining a light sometimes. The light's shining on you um, and it gets pretty hot. So, you know, I was thinking about this, about as like the sentinel event type thing, but I, I appreciate what you and Amy are both saying is that addressing them in little bits actually is maybe the way to normalize it in a way that waiting for those big bad things to happen those can never be normalized by, like you mentioned, little things, the routine. Every single week we're doing it all the time. It becomes so commonplace, so redundant. So you're just so used to it 
that may be doing it rarely, it's it's hard to get there. Well, the other thing that I find interesting is, you know, this, I love the whole concept of the DEI M&M, but I mean, being accused of racism and bias and taking care of patients is like raw. It's savage. You, got, you, got, you guys have those in your institution? Yes. That's in your department or that's hospital-wide or? We have it and, um, and that cuts deep, especially when it's your patient. It's tough. No, no. I mean, my goodness, I can't. I don't even want to know, right? I mean, Susan, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. I do. I actually, you know, I actually approached our quality and safety team is actually interesting because you're right. It's very like traumatic to hear about a lot of the quality issues. And I went into it just, you know, so after I finished my mixed fellowship and I started this a job in an urban community hospital and everything, I did a year and a half long clinical quality fellowship program. So formalized training in quality and safety. And, you know, I, I thought quality was going to save the world. That's honestly what I thought I was doing. And you dive into it and you're like, oh, my God, this is really not what I thought it was going to do. You know, like I thought it was going to bridge all gaps for disparities and patients and everything. And when all the different attention to DI and how institutions are approaching it came up, I remember asking our chief lead on quality. What are the fixable items, though? What do we do? Can you give us some tools so like none of this happens? And and it's it's one of those challenging things. But I, I think having the conversation the way you're having it is probably a step somewhere. I, I can't tell you about the second victim. Part of that as well, that probably happens at different times because people mean well in healthcare, but it may not broach different cultures and different ways of appreciating that they meant well. So I don't know. But yeah, maybe, maybe we'll show up sometime. Yeah, the second victim could be canceled. That's a whole other thing is making a mistake or being inappropriate, and that can be devastating to your career professionally, for sure. I think it's hard to go through a complication and then be scrutinized, and then you're always second-guessing at, you know, what could I have done differently, like the Monday morning quarterback situation, and, and then doing it in a public way is... I myself obviously have gone through it, and I appreciate the learning opportunities, but it is very tough. Very, very tough, you know? It just, like Susan, you're saying, it really depends on who's conducting the M&M and how the department approaches it. Yeah, and, and they don't intersect. So that's another thing that I probably forgot to mention. Our wellness person does not intersect with quality and safety. The fact that he even talks to me has nothing to do with quality and safety. So it's one of those things where I think keeping those tracks separate and just having different protections, you know, everyone really stands by what their vision is for it. So it's important to really keep those items separate. Yes, I can see that you want to have those as separate. Objective and subjective. Yeah. These are the facts. Let's go through it, figure out where mistakes were made, identify weak points in the system, nuts, bolts. Or weak points in you, like weak points that you perceive. We're, we're part of the system, right? I'm not excluding myself from the system. Yeah, like things you're coping with. Yeah, but then there's the fallout from that, which is I was the weakest link. The problem with the system is me, then I got to go home and deal with that, right? And that's where I think wellness and second victim and, and support for all this stuff really comes in. Well, that is important because, you know, a lot of systems engineering approaches for safety really have found that it's not one error that does it. It's multiple errors. I think we need to kind of diverge away from this technical error aspect. I did this editorial earlier this year for JMEG on patient safety and human uh, factor. And, you know, a lot of the focus was on human errors and technical 
errors and things like that. And, and rarely are those isolated events what lead to one devastating outcome. It's an accumulation of different things that Swiss cheese model, different er error models demonstrate that. So, so when we look at the second victim, it's really looking at how to help our colleagues cope with being human, just being human and, and, and appreciating the situation that they're in and really working through it in a way that helps them get to a healthy point. Um, and, and I think that's something that probably also came up during that surgical coaching session that we did with the training and everything. It, it almost felt like, you know, going through different surgical videos and different strengths and weaknesses sometimes can uncover things that need sometimes greater support or attention for different, you know, uh, physicians or surgeons. And that's something that I think as a community from MIGS, it's something that we should probably focus on or gynecologic surgeons. I'm, I'm grateful that as this has evolved, because it has evolved from M&M to, I think, quality and safety, and now to understanding the person, the second victim in all of this, I don't think any of them are the answer. I think they're all part of the answer. I think understanding our role as part of the system has allowed us to help understand and create systems-based solutions, but taking the person out of that or seeing us only as a piece of a, of a machine I think ignores the fact that we are, in fact, people. Uh, we have emotions. We we have feelings, and that we can we can be negatively impacted um, by these things. And so, I do think the fact that you mentioned that they were separate I had to think about it for a second. But separating those two things, I think, is important because they both are important, but in different ways. And I think sort of supporting both, making both of those things a regular part of our day to day, allows us to have that that balance, that kind of sort of bumpers on on both sides. OBGYN in particular is a very high liability field. And I think the traditional advice was you had to keep total confidentiality not talk about the case. And then more recently in the last few years, our organizations have actually said it is really hard to go through legal action and it's okay to to ask for help or advice, not advice, but just reach out to people for support because you need to support to to go through this. I mean, that's the legal ramification of all this in terms of second victim when it results in some sort of liability. And that is really, really stressful. Having gone through a little bit of that myself and seeing other friends go through it, it's incredibly stressful. So I'm actually glad that there our institutional supports and guidance on that because keeping that inside is just so tough. You feel like you can't talk to anybody about it. Yeah, I think, you know, also with healthcare teams, you know, that's one thing that was interesting from seeing how Schwartz rounds would run in different specialties. They approach it as a team approach, you know, whereas I, I think with OBGYN, sometimes it feels like a singular effort, but it's really not. It's it's a team. It's an entire team caring for someone, you know, down to even you can't get your next case in if the room's not clean before you, you know, and, and there, there's a whole team that goes into a lot of these different things. So it's really approaching healthcare from the team aspect, whether you, you choose to use like a swim lane hierarchy or something else of that sort. But the structure of healthcare teams and how we coexist with one another, that, that's really, you know, where the second victim comes in with this. You know, when I, when I hear the Schwartz rounds about caring for a patient in the ICU who deteriorated or something and hearing everyone's interactions and, and how that made them feel and, and their sense of loss after. And those are things that I, I think 
as a, a group, while, you know, the liability process can be very isolating, I think turning it into a culture where you can still support it because it only enhances patient safety and healthcare when you still have access to healthcare providers or healthcare physicians and healthcare surgeons and nursing. The suicide rates are very high in healthcare right now. So it's one of those things where you have to have an infrastructure for maintaining access to care and supporting our colleagues, whether it's, you know, physicians, surgeons, or nursing or other colleagues, just so that we still have additional resources to care for the population. So while they seem like they go against each other, I think in its own way, they help enhance safety overall. Yeah, I think when you bring up this mental health issues and really sequelae from all these events, PTSD, what have you, I I really highly recommend watching the Association of Academic Surgery Presidential Address. Um, I don't know if you saw that online, but it was extremely powerful. Dr. Carrie Cunningham-Libitz at MGH talks about her journey through medicine, and it is extremely powerful to hear. And then just in terms of the suicide rates and and especially in New York City, I mean, Dr. Uh, Lorna Breen at Columbia was an emergency room physician. My friend knew her, and obviously she was experiencing moral injury and and felt like there was no other way. So I think we have to balance these, our constant quest for improvement for, and then, you know, personal regard for the person and what people are going through as a team. So... I mean, expectations are perfection. I think that's, you know, we've surrounded ourselves by people who are type A, who don't get this far in life by doing things poorly. Our patients have expectations that are extremely high. Um, and we have higher, I think, higher expectations for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's something that moral, moral injury, I think, you know, is, a, is a, again, a term that's now being used to more accurately describe, I think, the impact of these things on physicians more so than burnout, which is a term, I didn't make this up, but I've been saying it for years, is that, you know, burnout's a, sh- a victim shaming term, you know, that you can't, you can't somehow tolerate the heat. Whereas this is not, that's not the issue. It's not, it's not the toast's fault for burning, right? I mean, we knew we have the oven turned up too high. It's, we're, 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 I think to say we're nearing crisis, I think we're, 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 we're in it. I mean, the suicide rates are incredibly high. One of the thoughts that I had, you know, just watching this address was, expecting perfection and you know flawless ex- execution every time and then seeing one success as a series of failures because it was almost like a negative lens of like all the things that you could have done differently and made mistakes and sometimes we're our own harshest critics and i think that's the gift that age gives is some perspective but it is hard it was definitely toughest when I first started. I mean, no one wanted me to do better than me. And you also have the skills that are hopefully the worst are going to be for you, right? I mean, you know, you're still learning when you get out. You have to prove yourself, you know. You have to prove yourself. Everybody's got their eye on you. And what's this person going to do? And that's when the spotlight's there. You're right. And then you realize as you get older and more experience and you get perspective, like, I think it helps. But what if your perspective never changes? What if you don't get there? I mean, I think I have 10 years of cases now that are that, that have good outcomes, but if you have some tougher outcomes early on, it's harder to come back from that. For sure. 
But I, I think that also depends on your patient population. And those are other things that I think come with time that you realize, you know, sometimes working in more challenging populations and things of that sort. I think when you're younger, sometimes it's hard to, to understand that, especially when you're first out. And, and it's, it's, it's not hopefully to also, you know, take away any motivation from trying to serve, you know, other populations where it can be challenging, but really providing an infrastructure for support then to, to balance that out. And I think that's something that has to be built in nationally in order to have just safer outcomes for patients and physicians. So I think you're, you're in a place now where it sounds like that infrastructure has been built in, but what do you do in a place where you don't have that infrastructure. Are there national resources? Are there, what are, what are your recommendations for folks who do not have the same level of institutional support? I think going, visiting the Schwartz Center online, and that's with a Z, Schwartz with a Z, um, and maybe we can provide that link. We can put that in the show notes. Yeah, it, it describes their programs and it provides how to become a member as well. I think latching on to successes of larger institutions sometimes, like taking out the heavy lifting behind developing programs, but tailoring programs that work for your own hospital or your own institution may be a way to do these types of things. Latching on to facilities that maybe have just developed programs or curricula or other things so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel where you are. I, I think that's probably what can happen, you know, just at least on a very local or a smaller level if you don't have something at your institution. And approaching leadership, it really has to come, I think, from leadership supporting these types of initiatives. Well, that's great. I mean, I think more and more places are seeing why this is important and are implementing these types of programs. But the fact that there are national resources, there are resources that that we can find outside of our institutions can be important to you. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. And thank you so much for bringing up this topic. I'm, I'm so glad it, you know, it gauged such interest from uh, surgical coaching. So we've come such a long way from sur surgical coaching you know, like and wellness and, and just integrating this all for the GYN surgical community. Now we've been lucky to have Angela and Kara on and, and, now, and, and you, I think, looking at sort of all the sides of how we as physicians develop, and we, you know, we're we're going to continue talking about the procedural parts of what we do and the surgical techniques and those things. But I think it's important to discuss that this is part of being a surgeon. This is part of being a obstetrician. This is part of being a doctor and and taking care of these patients and doing a good job and getting better, but being able to do it for a long time because keeping folks in the workforce is to to spend all this time and energy training us to have us leave the workforce is devastating for for the industry, for the patients, for the for, for what we do. So I, I was glad you and I got to chat at AGL. I'm glad we got to think about this and uh, it means a great deal that you're able to come on and um, and I know you're busy, but uh, thanks so much for coming on Backtable and, uh, and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for this whole, this holistic approach. Even Amy did ergonomics. So it's like the mental, physical well-being of the gynecologic surgeon. So thanks so much for your interest in this topic. We'll see you soon. And thanks again for, for coming on. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovaginski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.